Well, good morning, church. Really good to see you again. If you're uh, a regular and you haven't been out of town too much yourself, yeah, you, you might know that Gil and I have been out of town the last several weeks, and so good to, to, be, to be with you again. On Wednesday night, I saw a number of you, but Sunday morning, I see more of you, so real good to be with you. By the way, that uh, announcement coming up that in uh, a few weeks, somebody showed up real early this morning for the 830 service, but uh, it, it's uh, August the uh, 16th, is that right? Help me out. Anybody know? Yes, thank you. Thank you, Julie. Uh, August 16th. Now, um, we're going to have a problem with the 10 o'clock service, I think. I think these people are going to tend to go to the, the, um, the prime time. So if you could find it in your heart to come to first or the last services, that'd be great. I know that some of you are going to come to the 10 o'clock, and that's great. We're not going to kick anybody out, but we love to have folks, especially the first service. So you get extra points, you know, if you go to the first service. So, yeah, that'd be great. Um, Church, three weeks ago, I was in Colorado. Gil and I were in Crested Butte, Colorado. And um, the Supreme Court decision came out that uh, the definition, they've defined, redefined marriage. And uh, I was a little surprised at my response to that. It wasn't a complete surprise. I was a little surprised by it. But uh, what, what I really felt is, is uh, man, I, I wish I was with our church family to process this. That, that was immediately what was on my heart, that I just sort of ached inside that I wasn't here with you because it's such a landmark decision. I mean, two or three times in our lifetime, we will have decisions, Supreme Court decisions of that nature. 1962, prayer in the schools. 1973, Roe v. Wade, this decision. And, um, and, and uh, so it just, I, I wish that I'd been with you during that time since you know, God's called me to be your pastor. Uh, a few days later, I, I felt like God put it on my heart that, okay, Jeff, you're not there with them now, but as soon as you get back, this is the topic to address, to address with your people. So uh, that, that's the, uh, I, I, felt, uh, I felt better at that time that, uh, you know, I just felt the freedom that when I get back. So if you're a guest here, this is not our normal, normal, I go through books of the Bible, verse by verse. You know, we're in the Gospel of Luke for a couple of years, but from time to time, <laughs> I know, I know you love that. We're going to finish this year, maybe. <laughs> um, but um, from time to time, we do need to do this. And, and before I start, uh, let me uh, ex- express my heart. Um, for some of us, this issue is theological or political. But for many people in this room, it is not theological or political. It is deeply personal. There are folks in this room who have struggled and had a great deal of anguish with same-sex attraction. Um, there are a number of families in this room who've got, who have children who have announced to them, Mom and Dad, I- I'm gay. And put yourself in their shoes. And if you have not sat down face-to-face to talk with someone who's experienced this in a very personal, emotional way, then um, just encourage you to have some degree of empathy. Um, that this is a personal, deeply personal issue for a number of our people. And, and I have no desire as your pastor to stir up or increase anybody's pain here. But I do intend to uh, give us some biblical perspectives. On, on, on how we should look at and, and navigate through our, our culture on this issue. So I've got a number of principles. We're going to kind of scroll through them, and uh, one at a time. Number one, 
we, as a church, we are not surprised by our culture. We're not surprised that uh, non-Christians don't act in a Christian manner. We're not surprised that five Supreme Court justices are not governing their lives by biblical standards. That's no surprise to us. The Bible makes it clear that the church, we're in the world, but not of the world. We don't expect the world to be godly. Uh, we expect the, 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 the church to be godly. Uh, so we're not surprised. Um, we want to be not shaped by culture, but shaping culture. We want to be salt and light in our society. And um, when it comes to this issue, uh, I, can, I can think of that classic verse about culture shaping, Romans 12, 2, if I could use the J.B. Phillips famous translation, do not let the world squeeze you into its mold. And the point is, in all of life, uh, don't take your cues from culture on how to think and what the values are of your society. I am concerned that a significant amount of the church in the United States is being... uh, uh, Deceived by culture, being uh, enamored by, okay, this is the cultural, uh, you know, this is the popular thing. And we, we take our cues from God, not from our culture. Our over-sexualized culture, over-sexualized in every way. Not just with homosexual, same-sex stuff, but in every way. Our over-sexualized culture will suppress the truth of God, Romans 1. And they will misuse the gifts of God, and they will thereby hurt and damage people. We don't just kind of go along with that like, you know, just limbing, swimming in the culture. But we want to think biblically uh, on every issue, including this one. We want to be culture shapers, not culture shaped. We're not surprised where our culture is going and where it will probably continue to go. Secondly... We are neither intimidated nor shaken by the Supreme Court decision. You know, we're, we're not uh, those who, you know, oh, no, you know, what are we going to do? The sky is falling. You know, we're just unshaken. Uh, God's not given us a spirit of fear, but a power and love and a sound mind. And um, we don't have an angry response. We don't have a fearful response. Uh, we're trusting the Lord. Uh, I'm not, as a pastor, as a pastor of this church, I'm not concerned that uh, the government one day might declare that, Uh, churches like ours need to perform same-sex marriages. If they say that, we just won't do it. We'll just disobey it. Uh, Here's the perspective on government for a Christian. We obey the government unless it is sin to obey the government. So I think we're a long way from that. But if they ever did say, churches, you've got to perform same-sex marriages, we would disobey. we just go underground or whatever we needed to do. So we're not worried about that. Um, Thirdly, God defines marriage for us, not the U.S. Supreme Court. I mean, God bless those guys, but, uh, you know, they're very, very limited. They're grasshoppers, Isaiah 40 says. And um, in some ways, that decision changed the landscape in the United States. In other ways, it changed nothing. You know, God, uh, politicians will come and go. Governments will come and go, Isaiah 40 Nations are a drop in the bucket compared to God, but God is God. And God created marriage way before he created government or the church for that matter. It's the first kind of uh, institution that God creates. In Genesis 2, God creates the woman, brings her to the man, and in the most important 
verse on marriage in all the Bible and all of literature, uh, the curtain is drawn back, and the narrator in Genesis 2, God himself, gives us his view of marriage. And here's the essence of it. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, hold fast to his wife, and they will become one flesh. And there's so much in that passage about marriage, but the beauty of it uh, is, is the oneness and the glory, man and woman being very different, coming together in a, in a, in a lasting, loving committed relationship. Now, by the way, Jesus quotes this passage in the New Testament, and before he quotes it, he prefaces Genesis 1.27 that says, God made them male and female in his own image. And then he quotes Genesis 2.24, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Man and a woman, loving, lifelong relationship forever. That's God's perspective. That's God's definition of marriage, and that's our definition. Fourthly, the Bible says that homosexual behavior is sin. Note that I said homosexual behavior, not orientation, not desire, behavior. Uh, there are a number of, pa- well, there's not that many passages in the Bible, nine passages speaking to this issue. Three leading ones in the New Testament, in Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 1, 1 Timothy 1. Uh, not a lot of, on, the, on the issue, but there is a clear and consistent message that the Bible teaches that homosexual practice is sin. We're going to look together at Romans 1. If you've got a Bible, please turn there. If not, we're going to uh, put it up on the screen. I'm going to begin with verse 24. I don't know that we've got verse 24 on the screen, but uh, we'll get to 26 later on. But I'm going to begin in Romans 1, 24. By the way, uh, I hope uh, those of you who are students of the Bible kind of recognize that whenever you turn to Romans 1, beginning at verse 18 through the end of the passage, 18 through 32, it is the most seminal, foundational passage on sin in all the Bible. And when we get to verse 24, we read, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. And then in 26, we can put that up on the screens. Here here, Here we come directly to homosexuality. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. Now, crystal clear, as it is in other passages, that homosexual practice is sinful. It's not God's design for us. Now, one of the ways that um, some people uh, get around this clear teaching is they say, well, this doesn't refer to consensual homosexual behavior between adults, but this refers to exploitive sex, not, not consensual sex. It refers to things like prostitution and rape and pederasty, you know, adult child, things like that. Well, the problem is that's just not true. This is the normal Greek terms for consensual homosexual sin. The Greek language had terms for exploitive sex uh, with homosexual, but that's not used here. These are the normal terms. Uh, The great preponderance of scholars agree uh, this passage does not support homosexual practice. Uh, not, Not just the preponderance of scholars, the great preponderance of scholars from all stripes, liberal and conservative, agree that's just, that teaching is not supported by the New Testament. They could have may use those terms, 
but Paul didn't. He's talking about consensual sex with adults. Now, besides the terms, that's clear in the language. Can I just go back to Romans 126? Uh, make that 27. Their men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. We're talking mutually consenting adults. Consumed with passion. That is wrong. That is sin in the eyes of God. Um, so it's clear. Um, for disciples of Jesus, our views on things like this, um, they're shaped by the Bible. They're shaped by God. We are people under authority. If you claim to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, and wherever the Bible disagrees with current culture, you go with current culture, then you're not really a disciple of Christ. You're following yourself or you're following the culture. Disciples of Jesus Christ, we are not in, in management. We're in sales. We don't get to decide issues. And there are a lot of things in the Bible that I'd change if I could, but, 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 but I am a man under authority. That's what a disciple is. Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He's the Lord. I mean, when you think about a little one-year-old understanding Einstein, when you think about us understanding an infinite God, I mean, have a little bit of humility. And let's just don't be lemmings following the culture left and right. We're people under authority. Whatever God says, we do it. You know, in Romans 1, he goes on to say, by the way, he widens to other sins. He, he, he began with the, the homosexual sins in that passage. But notice how he widens that to so many other things. In verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, that is, uh, people who are rebelling against God in various ways will, will, will not acknowledge that God is God. There are no true atheists on the planet. Everybody knows in their heart of hearts God exists. But, but people, earlier in the passage we read, they suppress the truth. You know, it's not very comfortable. don't like that. And, and, and people, sometimes even people in the church, suppress various truths about God. They refuse to acknowledge God. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, covetousness, greed, this continual lust for more and more and more. Who in this room is free of the sin of greed and covetousness? That is the sin, the idol, the God of our age. No room for any condescension here about homosexual sin. All kinds of, of, of evil and unrighteousness and covetousness. That's idolatry, the Bible says. He goes on. Uh, malice, you know, holding a grudge, not forgiving. When God's given you, forgiven you for a hundred billion, billion dollars of sins, you know, you can't forgive that thousand dollar sin or even that million dollar sin. That's sinfulness before a holy God. It says they are full of envy. I struggle with envy. You guys struggle with envy? I do. Man, Lord, I'd be sure blessing that guy over there. <laughs> sin before a holy God. How can I, a sinner, have condescension toward anybody else? No matter what sin that, that they're involved with. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit. Man, where is an honest man or woman? I'm still looking. 
maliciousness. They are gossips. Oh. Slanderers. Haters of God. Insolent. Haughty. Bunch of haughty grasshoppers. Boastful. Inventors of evil. Disobedient to parents. Foolish. Faithless. Heartless. Ruthless. Get this one. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. There are a lot of folks in the church today. It's become a kind of a popular thing. Let's just give approval of this. Let's just condone it. God says that is wrong before me. You know in your heart it's not right. Don't just acquiesce with the culture. You are a man under authority. You're a woman under authority. You're a disciple of Jesus Christ. Okay. Five. How should the church respond? Well, church, many of you know me well. You know where I'm going to go now. With fervent humble, joy-filled, non-angry love. Now, in 1 Corinthians 13, the passage of passages here, where Paul says, you know, if you have, have, have the gift of tongues, the tongues of angels and men, and, and, and if you uh, have the gift of prophecy, you have the gift of faith, you can make a mountain move from here to there, you uh, have all knowledge, you can give up your body to be burned, you give everything you have to the poor, but if you don't have love, you ain't got Nothing. Nothing. You may have theological precision and acumen on this issue, but if you're not filled with love for all people, you ain't got nothing. You don't have nothing to bring to the table. Church, that is so strong. Jesus says, this is the mark of, of my followers, love for one another. What does love mean in this, in this instance? It doesn't mean you Go along with the culture and, ah, oh, no, no problem, no problem, sure. That, that's not love. In fact, love may be the opposite. Telling someone, speaking to a culture, God's got a better way for you. Got a better way for you. Got freedom in life for you. But I tell you what love is not. It's not angry. It's not self-righteous. It's not condescending. We as a church in America, have gotten a solid F in my lifetime when it comes to these things. We say with broken hearts. Because it is easy for us, in our knowing we all struggle with all kind of sin, to take out a sin or two that we don't struggle with and, and just get all self-righteous. And I hear Jesus in Luke 18 talk about the, the Pharisee who was Thank you, I'm not like that, Lord. Have you ever felt that way about folks with homosexuality? Thank you that I'm not like that, Lord. But God turns to the tax collector and says, Oh, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Church, how in the world could you and I, fallen, frail, sinful people who are just saved by a gracious God on the base of the cross, how could we have any sort of self-righteous condescension toward anybody? Or anybody? Beggars. Saved by grace. Church, we got to lead with love when it comes to this issue. This is an opportunity for us. This isn't a woe is me sort of thing and oh no, what are we doing? This is an opportunity for us, for the church to be the church. The problem and this issue with our culture, is the problem is not because of Hollywood or social media or the U.S. Supreme Court or the U.S. government. It is the church. 
not being the church. People leading out with love, humble, fervent, joy-filled love. Let's be the church. If we're not known for this, we've missed it. All right. No pride, no self-righteousness, no anger. Okay, six. What might I say to someone struggling with same-gender attraction? You know, if I was invited to, to, to speak into it, well, first of all, I'd focus on Christ and not their sexuality. But if I was pressed, I, I'd say some more things. But I'd, I'd try to put the focus on Christ. Um, first of all, I, I hope there would be no trace, no scintilla of self-righteousness or condescension. I mean, I know my brokenness. Many of you know my brokenness. I mean, my sinfulness and my brokenness. I just told you about a couple of my sins I struggle with. But many of you know that I've struggled with mental disease big time my whole adult life. Four or five years ago, I thought I might just go crazy enough that, you know, just I wouldn't survive. I mean, I got plenty of brokenness. You got brokenness out there? Yes, you do. We all got brokenness. We all need a Savior. I would say, with, with as much love and boldness as I could, God's way is always better. It's always better. problem is people who aren't interested in obeying God, they don't want to hear that. I'm thinking about uh, uh, someone who's pursuing a divorce, a real person, pursuing a divorce. They don't want to hear God's way is better. Man, I'm the exception. You don't understand me. You know, God, you know, God wants me to be happy. They don't, you know, I don't understand, but God does. And God is clear about many things in the scriptures. And every time God says, don't do this, he is saying to us, don't hurt yourself. And every time God says, do this, he is saying, help yourself. God is good. He's good. He's good. And so who would we be to, to, to say, you know, God doesn't know what he's talking about here, but Hollywood does, so let me go with Hollywood on this. Um, God's ways are always best. God's got a better way. I would, I would, I would make this clear that, um, um, that that this is not the worst of sins. Uh, it, it, there's a lot of other sins in the, the, these all three of those lists, some of which clearly does more damage to human life: unbiblical divorce, ripping the hearts out of kids, adultery. Child abuse, murder, there are worse sins. I would certainly appeal, find your identity not in your sexual orientation, but in Jesus Christ and his love for you. Because so many people go up there, you know, they just identify, I'm gay, this is who I am, I'm a lady, this is who I am. That's not who you are. You are a much-loved child of the living God. And the God who created you is crazy in love with you to the extent that he sent his son to die on a cross for sinners. He's crazy about you. Every one of us, despite our great sin, identify yourself, find your identity in Jesus, not in your sexual drives. I would say this. I'd say uh, 
uh, God's will for all of us is sexual purity. Not, not just those who struggle with same-sex attraction, but, 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 but all of us. And there is far more heterosexual sin going on than homosexual sin going on. Pornography, lust, adultery, premarital sex, uh, extramarital sex. I mean, I mean, let's just let's just you know not pick out certain folks who uh, you know taking a sin that we don't struggle with and point the finger. I mean, let's in our brokenness that the church is just as as guilty as as those outside the church when it comes to all of these issues. Oh, God, forgive us for not being the church, for not being disciples that you've called us to be, to be the salt and light. You should know this. Um, People are not born because of a gene or genes uh, as homosexual, gay, or lesbian. Um, Human behavior is far too complex to be determined by one gene like that. There are a range of causes and issues. It is not a simple matter. It is a complicated, complex matter. But you're not sentenced to do something. Even if there was a proclivity or a predisposition, like with alcoholism and certain things, then, you know, the, if you've got a proclivity to alcoholism, then don't drink. If you've got a proclivity to something, don't do it. God's will for all of us is sexual purity. It's his best for us. It's his best for us. We can't obey the Lord. If you're in Jesus Christ, you can obey the Lord. One of Satan's most vicious lies is you just got to do this then. Now, some of you are using that excuse in other areas of your life. It'd be easy for me to say, I just can't help being envious and jealous. You know, just, that's the way I've always been. That's the way I'm going to be. That, what a cop-out. The Bible says in Romans 6, 11, Consider yourselves, you in Christ, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. You don't have to sin. You don't have to give way to any sin if you're in Christ. You can obey the Lord. Don't give yourself a cop out with pornography or gossip or, or not loving your wife or, or staying faithful in your marriage. By the grace of God, you can obey the Lord. He's given you freedom, freedom to obey because it's our best. It's our best. Okay, seven. If you struggle with same-gender attraction, look to Jesus. There's grace in Jesus. There's power in Jesus. There's freedom in Jesus. And there's freedom and power and grace because of the cross. Because of the cross. Because Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves. We were slaves to sin. We would be buried in sin for the rest of our lives, for the rest of eternity. But God steps out of eternity. He sends His Son, God, in the flesh. He dies on a cross. My sins were all placed upon Him, and He paid for them. Glory, glory, freedom in Christ. Run to the cross. Why would you not run to the cross and receive the forgiveness of a a gracious, loving God? Why would you not? There is power and freedom and salvation in the cross. All right, here's a a topic that really grabs my heart. Some of you... As parents have had children say to you, sometimes as late teens, mid-teens, early 20s, you know, mom, dad, I am, this is who I am, I'm homosexual, I'm lesbian, and it's ripped your heart out. Let me just encourage you. Don't give way to fear. Don't give way to guilt. Satan is an accuser. 
And he's going to try to ruin your life and take you out of the spiritual life and out of meaningful service for God. Look, some of the best parents I know have children who are in rebellion against God. Some of the worst parents I know have children who are loving Jesus. So no room for pride here or self-condemnation. You know, it's just not always so simple. Um, Were you not a perfect parent? Well, join the party. Ain't no perfect parents here. Uh, We're all flawed. And if you have children like that, don't withdraw from them. Don't isolate from them. Love them. Keep praying. Don't give up. And tell Satan where to go. All right. One more. The answers to our country's problems are not at heart political but spiritual. I want you to hear that. Now, I am all for Christians... Uh, running for office if God calls you to that. I am certainly for all of us Christians voting, using our responsibilities in a democracy. I am all for that. But, church, I am not, um, not going to encourage you to look to the politics or the government as the ultimate solutions to our crying problems. We need the church to be the church. And that means love, just like Jesus, truth and love, truth and love. Jesus was full of grace and full of truth, full of grace and full of truth. But, but in, the, in the New Testament, in those days when, when there were far greater persecution and problems and opposition from the Roman government to the extent that Christians like Paul got their head chopped off, um, they're, and they're, they recognized their desperateness and they hit their knees in prayer. They changed the world through prayer. Um, I'm not surprised that our culture is, is getting worse and worse because the church in America is not a praying church. We're not. We got too much money. We don't have enough persecution. I bet if ISIS just poured over here, you get more people serious about prayer. Let's don't wait until that happens. Let's get serious about prayer right now. Think about the country that you are bequeathing to your children and your grandchildren. On your watch, and it's okay for you to, have, to, to pray some mealy-mouthed little prayers and hardly come with desperateness to God? Is that okay? No, let's be a generation who seeks the Lord on our knees and cries out to a holy God, God, if you don't do something incredible, it won't happen. The salvation of our country is not another evangelical president. We've tried that. It didn't work. I'm all for an evangelical president, but that is not going to change it. The church across America getting serious about prayer is our only hope. Church, we've got a prayer service here at Woods Edge. Why don't we cry out for our country? Why don't we cry out for revival? Why don't we cry out for brokenness? Why don't we cry out in confession of sin for our own sins? Look, I know that some of you, this doesn't work. That you're out of town, you don't get home. Okay, I know there's some valid reasons, plenty of invalid reasons, but there's some valid reasons. This is what I ask you. This is what I ask. Beginning September, the first Wednesday of the month, first Wednesdays is a time to pray for our land. I need you as a church to come and be willing to hit your knees and cry out to God. Let the church be the church. Let this be the church's finest hour. Fill with love. No trace of anger or self-righteousness or fear, but crying out with humility 
Not pointing our fingers at others, but, but pointing our fingers at ourselves. This is what the Bible says in the classic passage, 2 Corinthians 7. It says, if my people who are called by my name, that's you. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Friends, the church in America is not desperate enough. Oh, God, show us how desperate we really are before the crisis come. First Wednesdays, pull your smartphones out and put it down there. Seven o'clock. John Bizzagno is, if we've got a patriarch as a leader in a, the city of Houston, it's John Bizzagno. He built First Baptist, pastored it 25, 30 years. John has become a dear friend, and he is calling about 40 churches around our city, the greater city area, that once a month you gather together and pray for our land and invite all the other churches to come join you. John called me about this. and John, we're already meeting for that. We'll just make the first Wednesdays our special prayer night. There are other churches doing this throughout the city. Um, we're going to be right in the thick of it. Church, what am I saying this morning? I'm saying, like Jesus, full of grace, full of truth. Full of grace, full of truth. Let the church be the church. We want to make disciples? Let's be disciples. Let's be full of love, full of truth. People on our knees, crying out to God for our city. That's our vision. See, he used to become a great city of God, crying out to God for our city and for our land. Stand with me, please. Lord God, we want to please you as a church. Lord, we don't want to have any trace of pride or self-righteousness or fear or anger or intimidation. We just want to love you and enjoy you, and we want to love the people around us that you've called us to love with all humility, with joy, with your grace. Lord, we thank you for a Savior. We are beggars saved by grace. We love the grace of God. We love it. Thank you for it. Papa, I know that there are some people here that this, there's a lot of pain in this area. And oh, Lord, my heart goes out to them. Please pour out your healing grace and mercy. Friend, if you're here and you've never taken the first step to God of just receiving his grace, this is what the Bible says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Look to him. Don't look to your being good enough or church or anything else. Look to a, a Savior who died on a cross for you. Just open your heart. Yes, Jesus. Yes, Jesus. I need a Savior. He'll do it.